This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Stargate Voyager. I think we're looking, again, at a lost technology. And it was this ancient apocalypse 12,800 years ago that wiped that from the human memory banks. Why were these ancient, elongated, skulled peoples or humanoids of Malta living underground? Now I believe we're talking prior to 9700 BC for the original construction of the Sphinx. And they were what some people have called giants, probably no more than seven to eight feet tall. And those giants have been pulled out of American maps. Whether it's the colossal statue heads that have been unearthed, to all the strange artifacts you've been showing in the museums, to some of the strange features they seem to possess, the more I learn about the Omet culture, uh, really the more fascinated I become. I want to invite you to join us on one of our upcoming tours this spring and summer. We've got Egypt coming May 8th through the 19th. We're going to have a private visit inside the Great Pyramid. We're going to see the Great Sphinx of Giza up close. We're going to go underground and see these massive boxes in the Serapium. We're going to see these colossal megalithic statues. And we are going to look for evidence of lost ancient technology all over Egypt. June 30th through July 6th, we're going to be in England. We're going to have a private visit in Stonehenge. We're going to go inside crop circles and uh, fathom the phenomenon. We're going to go inside ancient megalithic burial chambers. We are going to consider the legends of ancient giants. And it's going to be an England trip uh, unlike no other. In August, we've got the Peru and Bolivia tour. Go to Machu Picchu. We're going to go to Saksimamon and see these colossal 100 ton plus walls. We're going to see elongated skulls. We're going to dip into Bolivia and go to Puma Punku and see these H blocks and all of the strange humanoid statues. I hope you'll join us. Go to stargatevoyager.com slash tours to register. Well, I'm super excited to be joined again by a great author, an incredible researcher, uh, Gary Wayne, author of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Gary, I think we did our first couple of interviews like back in 2017, 18, and it's been way too long. I've been itching to get you back. So thank you so much for making the time and joining me again. Thank you for inviting me back and so happy to be back and looking forward to the show and hoping that some of the things that we are going to be talking about today is going to fill in some gaps for people and maybe raise some eyebrows, but at the same time, try and make sense of our world, what was, what is, and maybe what's going to be. Yeah, I'm really excited because what you write about in your book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, dovetails with so much work I do into ancient history and going out to these sites in Egypt, in Peru, um, looking at these megalithic marvels. And so um, I'm just excited to ask you about your new book in a second. That's a, a little teaser. But first, I want to ask you, I don't want to assume everybody um, 
knows about the Genesis 6 conspiracy, as, as you call it. So just give us a nutshell. Obviously, I'll, I'll reference one Bible verse, uh, Genesis 6, 4, that talks about how there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them and they were the mighty men of old or giants. So give us a little snapshot of your journey and how you decided one day, I've got to write a book um, called the Genesis six conspiracy that basically chronicles this ancient race of giants that the Bible and, and, and a bunch of non-biblical texts reference. Yeah, it's it's an interesting story, and for people who aren't familiar with the Genesis six conspiracy book, one is that, and the subtitle should catch your attention if if the Genesis six conspiracy doesn't. And the subtitle is is how secret societies and giants plan to enslave humankind. And so, this book is probably one of the most unique books out there. And whether or not you're into secret societies, whether or not you're into prehistory, it uh, doesn't matter from what source, whether or not you're into uh, biblical prehistory. Uh, this book is, again, unique in that complete genre. And it is a 6,000-year connect-the-dots investigation into what I like to call the House of Dragon. And their spurious offspring or the, the spurious uh, offspring of the gods or the celestial mafia, as I like to call them, uh, as being godfathers and parents of a spurious offspring. So it is a 6,000 year investigation where it starts the beginning of uh, with Genesis 6 and the creation of these giants. But it ties in the sort of the hierarchical organizational structure of the antediluvian or pre-flood epoch and pulls in information from all around the world and all different cultures, all different religions. And I let those religions and cultures speak in their own words so that there's no manipulation and people can see how that lines up with the Bible. So it's a story about how that whole structure comes to power, gains control of the whole world, leads it into the first apocalypse by water, how it crosses the flood, both the offspring the uh, organizational structure of the mystical religion, the knowledge, and they usurp the kingships and the governments, again, how they've affected our history, what they're doing today, and what they're planning to do to bring about the end of days. So it is, there is no other book that goes all through that kind of history with all of those organizations and tells more of a complete story. And that's what makes it so unique. So, yeah, it's a good question. How would somebody ever get on to that kind of sort of thought process and write a book like that? And it didn't happen all at once. That's for darn sure. And that a lot of times I just set the project aside because I thought nobody's going to buy this. Nobody's going to read it. Um, but I just kept being pulled back into the the pursuit and the information would just sort of come to me. So... I uh, I kept coming back and then, uh, you know, I managed to get it published and it's been, and it sells better every year, which is crazy because it's been out for like eight or nine years now. And, but it's one of those books that people will use as a uh, reference book. And it's written in a way that even though it's a long book and it's over 800 pages, um, that every chapter is a mini story. 
and it's a short four or five pages on average that leads into the next chapter and we'll keep coming up as the book unfolds and then i try and write it in a way that keeps it interesting as well and that's what a lot of people think is there's so much information in there but it's so compelling and so uh and for a lot of christians they say for the first time the world makes sense for the first time the old testament starts to make sense so i got started on it in kind of a odd kind of way so back in about 1980 or 1981 and i was very very young 20 or 21 at the time and my brother and his friend comes over for friday night beers and we're getting into it in the night and they're talking about antichrist and false prophet and i have no idea what they're talking about and uh, i've heard the terms obviously there's movies out about antichrist but not in a way they're talking about it so I'm just sort of drinking and listening. And then one of them turns to me and says, how much courage do you have? And I said, well, I'm, you know, <laughs> courage. And this, at that age, you're not afraid of anything. So they said, well, there's a book we have for you to read if you have enough courage. And I had no idea what book that they were going to list. I think a lot came through my mind, but not the one that they provided me. And it turned out to be a prophecy book by Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth. So, you know, a month or so later, I bought the book, I read it, it scared the socks off of me. And so then I needed to verify it. So it's pretty easy to look up passages, and he seemed to be quoting it accurately. But, you know, in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, and just as it is today, there's so much manipulation of the Bible, and that they twist things and leave out things and they're just doing it for money and all that sort of stuff. So I thought the only way to really verify it is I have to learn about the Bible. So I have to read it. So I had to read it a couple of times and I found I had to go to a modern translation versus the KGV because I wasn't ready for the Baconian English. And I, I use it now, but I had to <laughs> get there through a process. Um and that's why the, fir the first book is written using the NIV, because that's that's the Bible I came back to Christ with. And so I started to log everything through, and I had to do it many times because you, you just can't get it all. But as I'm doing it, you get to Genesis 6 pretty quick, and it's talking about giants. And I'm going, I don't know what that's all about. That's not what I'm here for. That's crazy stuff. I'm ignoring that. But it just keeps coming up throughout the bible and then so at some one of the times as i'm going through and logging everything in the files i said i might as well lock that log that because it's just sort of a loose end that you know if i'm going to buy into the prophecy which is pretty preternatural i guess there might be something to giants and so but you don't get all of the information on the giants first time through because you're not sure everything that you're looking for not every tribe that's a giant tribe is listed so i had to go back several times to sort of get that kind of understanding as well and so after i had put in all the prophecy trails together and there's many narratives i thought maybe i could write a book but i don't have a university education uh, I'm not a minister. I don't have a theology degree. I don't have a media platform. I wasn't on social media. There is no reason why anybody would publish my book or anybody would buy it. But I thought, maybe I'll write a short book. <laughs> and that was the plan. I'm going to write a short book and I'm going to write how Genesis 6 is somehow connected to Revelation in the end time. So I wrote the first 10 chapters pretty quick. That was pretty easy to do. But then uh, I realized because before I started on this sort of passion and, and obsession, 
is that I was a real fan of history and prehistory and mythology. So I knew there was a lot of data points that were represented all around the world. They're talking about the same kind of events. They're talking whether it's in prehistory or history. And also what comes with that mythology is future prophecy in most of those cultures. And they had a similar uh, depiction, different outcome, different polytheist lens versus the monotheist lens of the Bible and Genesis on prehistory, but nonetheless talking about the same type of event. So either they're counterfeiting the Bible, the Bible is counterfeiting them, or it's just seeing it from a different cultural lens about the same events. And that's kind of where I kind of lean on it from is, is it's just the lens that's being talked through. And they're talking about the actuality of all of these events, like the floods and like 500 cultures around the world is on all continents and that it's telling about not a local flood it's a worldwide flood it's not saying that only north america was flooded it's saying the whole world was flooded and it's all saying it's caused by the same groups of peoples and the same issues you can't make sense of that if these cultures were that backwards and had no explanation or, or connection and so I started to add all of that in. And then I realized that, you know, if you're going to understand these different cultures, at least for Christians, because it's a, a biases towards Christians, even though I'm trying to encourage other people to look at all the information, you have uh, the religions that are describing the culture and the context to what these legends and mythologies or history are. So I had to dig into that. So I had to read the, you know, Vedas and, the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads, the Quran, uh, you know, even I even read the Book of Mormon, the Popol Vuh, the Gnostic Gospels, anything I could get my hands on that was something that I could reference as opposed to oral traditions. And so I don't really do much in oral traditions because I want to be able to quote the source and I don't want to say somebody said this So because I'm a contrarian. So um, not that there aren't oral traditions that go in the same uh, venue because they do. And so when I did that, I learned that there was this mystical religion that is part of that whole concept that is and, and, and why I was reading about those religions and that they had developed the mystery schools. And out of the mystery schools come the secret society. So then I had to learn about secret societies because I didn't know anything about secret societies. I've heard of Freemasons, sure, but didn't really think too much of as, as to who they were. I spent over 10 years down on that. So finally I put that all together and it goes to like 98 chapters. Um, even though I had to weed out like over 300 pages to try and get it down to a size where I, I might get published because unknown high cost, bad sort of nexus in terms of trying to get published, but I pursued. So that's how I came about doing it. And all the way I was kind of kicking and screaming on how much I'm going to put into this book because I want to be done. I want to be moving on to the next project. But I think it was worth uh, sticking with it and putting together a story that when people read it, they're never forgetting, uh, forget it. Not everybody agrees with it, but it does get, you know, very, very high ratings, like I think four and a half or 4.6 out of uh out of five on the scale on Amazon and for anything that is challenging the status quo on so many areas, that would be odd because one of the things that the publishers didn't like about 
my book was they thought I might be in what they call uh, a sort of a conundrum or a conflict. Uh, and that's because you're just going to get everybody upset as opposed to what's your target audience. Maybe you should be playing a little bit more towards them. So, um, well, that's, that's like an amazing news that it's selling better each year. Yeah. That's incredible. And like, I'll be, uh, I know I speak for many others when I say we are very glad you wrote this book. I use it as a reference often. And I can say, if you get this book, you are going to get your money's worth because it is a big book. I don't even want to ask you how long it took you to write it. it sounds like it was just year, years upon years. But, Almost um, 20 years. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so then all the research before that. So Right. So, so um, yeah, to everybody watching, listening, um, buy Gary's book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. And you can get it on Amazon or on your website too, right? Yes. So if you go, that's the easiest way to get a hold of it. Uh, on my website, I've got a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters up there for it. So one look at that table of contents, that's going to get your interest. And all, all the chapters, the names are going to get your interest as well. So you can get a signed copy from me off the website. You can uh, link over to barnesandnoble.com, to amazon.com, amazon.ca, and to the Kindle version. And for the new book, there'll be also a Kindle version as well. That's going to be available for it. And it's also available on most online bookstores. I don't know whether it's on, on, on how many stores it's on today for shelves, but there's still returns that come back that sort of come off my royalty check because you don't get uh, credits for returns from certain retailers. So um it's still on some shelves, but the easiest way to get it is online. And that easiest way to go to my website and go to where like, you know, over 80% of the books are bought. Awesome. Well, this uh, next hour is just going to fly by. I've got so much to ask you and we're just going to jump all over the place. Uh, before we do that, I want you to just make sure and, and plug your next book, your second book, uh, tell us the title, when it's going to be released, how people can get it. But obviously, most importantly, kind of give us a teaser about what this second book is about. Yeah, so it's called The Genesis Six Conspiracy Part Two. It is a little shorter than the first book, only 84 chapters this time. And yes, there's that much information. And no, I didn't get it all in in the second one as well. But this book, I thought I would never write. And the subtitle to it was How Understanding Prehistory and Giants Helps to Define End-Time Prophecy. And so what happened was, is I had a lot of Christians come to me and say, we want a book that's more targeted at us. Your first book is really good, but we want to go deep into the Bible. So this book is targeted at Christians and goes really deep in the Bible, but if you want to know and learn about names of giants and tribes, unlike anything else that's out there, this is also a book if you're a non-Christian. And it's written in a way that is not preachy. It's about what it says and how it tied into prehistory and mostly the post-Diluvian order and the Raphaim kingdoms and the Raphaim giants So, and the beast kingdom. So I'm talking about like the Roman Empire. I'm talking the Greek Empire. I'm talking the Babylonian, Persian, Syrian, 
Egypt, and I'm going to use some outside sources. I'm going to use the Ugaritic text and the Egyptian execration text and a whole bunch of other sources to show some parallels. And it is a book that uh, covers off all of the giant tribes that are listed in the Bible. And if you think somebody thinks they know them all, there's going to be names in there that you absolutely have never heard of and most Christians haven't heard of. I'm going to cover off the hybrids as well because there's a smaller form of giant that's not really fully recognized that is an important part of the history and recognized in other cultures. I'm going to cover off the angelic order, its hierarchy, and the gods and how that fits in. So you're looking at the pantheon of gods. How does that fit in with... Uh, how it looks with the pantheon, not the pantheon, but the uh, the Saba, the host, the hierarchy uh, of the God of the Bible. And it's very similarly structured, but I'm going to be able to put that in in terms of who the Balim are or uh, the Greek gods or the Sumerian gods and give, give the parallels on that. And then it's going to cover off all of the giant wars in the Bible. And for most Christians, they don't know about the giant wars, and certainly non-Christians do not. There's a lot of giant wars, and it begins in Genesis 14, but I'm going to cover off uh, all the conquest wars of the Exodus, so beginning at Rephidim, and then Atherim, and then the eastern campaign against King Og and Sihon, then the central campaign and the southern, and then the northern campaign, and then the, the mountain campaign, and then all the wars of the judges. People know about the judges. People don't spend a whole lot of time there. Those are all giant wars, and I'm going to take that right through to King David, King Saul, and King Solomon's giant wars as well. So there's a significant section on that, and I'm going to highlight key words all the way through the first two-thirds of the book and lay down an end-time chronology for people and how to fit those the context of prophecy that comes out of prehistory. So if you want to understand end-time prophecy from a biblical perspective, you have to understand the giants and you have to understand the terminology because all the context is there. And it comes from a very simple principle that nothing is new under the sun what was will be again and we see a repeating cycle that is going to come to full fruition and then denouement in the end time and polytheism has the same understanding just a different outcome so wherever you come from on this you may want to learn a little bit more about it but in the meantime i'll entertain you with stuff that you never thought was in the bible exciting and in this book you're hoping it's going to be released around what month March 12th or earlier. So that's the uh, safe date that is out there so that they don't miss the release date and they don't get published by the big retailers. So if it's out sooner, I'll be shipping sooner. And if it's out sooner, I would expect that Amazon will start selling it uh, sooner. Barnes & Noble would start because they're all pre-ordering for it. And that the digital copy is already in Amazon's hands for the Kindle. So should be just a matter of time when they want to release it. I'm hoping they do the digital copy or the Kindle one before uh, the printed book comes out, but we'll have to wait and see. Exciting. That's got to be so exciting to have your second book about to be released. Uh, all the hard work is about to be paid off and your knowledge unleashed on the world. That's so awesome. Um, I think one of the first big questions I wanted to ask you, Gary, because again, it's been several years since we did an interview. So you've been studying for decades uh, this stuff about prehistory, uh, the ancient 
hybrid race of giants that the Bible talks about, the book of Enoch talks about, all these other extra biblical texts. Uh, even historians like Josephus talk about the giants. Uh, I know we've talked about on other shows. And now you've written the second book that's about to be released. So my question is, is there anything new regarding uh, giants, the Genesis 6 conspiracy that's, that's changed in your mind um, over the years since the first book was released to the new one coming? Is there any nugget you can give us on something where your, your thinking has changed? I would say maybe evolved or developed as opposed yeah. to changed. Evolved, um, yeah. uh, because as you do more research and certainly for the new book, I had levels of research already done, but to provide the proper annotation um, that I like to provide. And uh, then it means you need to go right to the sources. And so, um, yeah, I think what was really interesting to learn is how, uh, one of the key nuggets was that I talk a lot about the Tuatha de Danan in the first book, or the uh, Tuatha Dene or the Tuatha Danu. They have a lot of different names. The Scythians are part of the Indo-Aryans and the Scythian group. And there's several different groups of those uh, Tuatha de Danan. But they're actually connected into the Ugaritic texts. And they are known as the Datanu in the Ugaritic text as part of the assembly of the giants, like a great round table of giant kings and tribes represented at Mount Hermon below the Balim. And so that was rather interesting in that you actually get the root word out of uh, for Raphaim, post-Diluvian giants versus Nephilim, antediluvian giants that comes out of old Semitic that the Ugaritic texts were written in, and that's RPM. And uh, so the H in the Raphaim, you know, R-E-F-H-A-I-M, that H would have been silent in old Semitic. And so it would have been just pronounced with the P, just as some people would pronounce the Nephilim as uh, Nephilim. Um, they're both correct. It's just an evolution of the language. So that was really surprising in that that's the root word. And a lot of those Words that are used in the Ugaritic text show up in the Hebrew in the Old Testament. So you get these really sort of direct linkages. And I wasn't really, um, I, I, I was a little bit surprised at that, that it, it was able to connect um, whether it is the, you know, the gods at Nippur, which is another word for Mount Hermon or the Olympian gods. They all have the order of the gods assembly of the gods that is talked about in psalms 82 and you have an assembly of these giant demigod kings and it's the same thing and, and i wasn't really expecting to learn that and what's surprising about that is these were post-diluvian giants and that they were the seeds to the bloodlines and the royalty um, in a way that didn't i didn't fully comprehend all of it in the first book uh, that provided the seeds to what were known that are known biblically as the beast empires. So that's Egypt, Assyria, Greece, Rome, Babylon, Persia, and the coming end time empire. And it's all sort of interconnected, but from the beast empires. And that was how they were working uh, to try and do things over and over and over again. And there's a lot of antichrist wannabes. And so like, 
Alexander, who I talk about in the first book, would be, you know, right up there as one of the ones that came very, very close to succeeding uh, before he died sort of mysteriously. Um, so, yeah, there's a few things like that, but it's just more of the additional details that just kept rushing in to confirm what I already had. And as I dug more deeply, you know, one of the things I didn't want to do in the first book is I didn't want to get into who the Cadmonim really were or the Kenazim or uh, the Havim and all of these different names because I didn't want to go beyond and give so much minutia to people uh, just to say, hey, these were giants. And so, and I didn't have the whole story of all of those tribes. So this book, I had to go a little bit deeper just to get more information on that. And uh, the sourcing I put in my books for people who haven't read my books, it is unlike any other sourcing you're going to see out there. And I show all of my sources and the bibliography is something else in both books as well. So only this time I do it as a footnote, not an endnote, so that you've got that information right there. And I put a lot more information into the footnotes this time because it's so relevant. That's very helpful. I love it when authors do that. And to me, that just makes it even more credible when you're listing all the sources, all the credits, because it's like a little trail you can follow to find even more, more information. Um, yeah. So I just got back from a trip to Peru last month. Again, you're seeing these massive cyclopean walls, like at Sacsayhuaman, made from 100 plus ton interlocking blocks, mortarless, can't fit a razor blade through the joints. This is granite stone, or this is diorite. It's very hard stone. The point I'm making is mainstream history tells us the Inca built this. The Inca were an incredible civilization. Um, but if you are into this realm that we are diving into, the Inca had bronze and copper tools, which rank like a three or four on the Mohs scale of hardness. How in the world would they have been able not to just chip away at, but precision craft, almost laser-like cuts with softer tools into way harder stone? So the point is, it appears to be evidence of lost ancient technology, right? And then you go into these caves high in the Andes. One of my favorite sites is called uh, Noapa uh, Iglesia where there's literally a portal-like door laser cut into the side of the mountain. There's no way people drug power tools up with a long cord, you know, <laughs> a mile down the mountain. This thing is ancient, yeah. ancient in its precision. And then you get into the legends and the oral traditions of the Inca and the pre-Andean civilizations and it's crazy how it mirrors what the bible talks about you yeah. know a creator a flood giants <laughs> restarting it's all right there in the in the in the inca's own mythos they talk about viracocha their creator god yeah. um who basically i think their 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 legends say he created the giants and the giants were devouring humankind and so he sends the flood and starts over. I mean, it's so crazy it's, mirroring yeah. Genesis 6, right? So I wanted to ask you, again, we've got the Bible. We've got the book of Enoch. We've got all these extra biblical texts you've referenced. 
We've got all these oral traditions and legends from cultures all over the world talking about a flood, talking about giants. Uh, and again, I want to state that because I don't want to assume everybody is new to this discussion. So in your first book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, you kind of near the beginning start out talking about, well, first you break down how these giants even appeared. And in a nutshell, you know, it's according to the Bible, these fallen angels or these uh you know, they descended to earth, took on, you know, some kind of form, bred with earth women, and their offspring were these giants or these Nephilim, these hybrids, half human-like, half, um, you know, almost supernatural, right? So you share in your book how I think you say Satan took on the form of a seraph, which is a kind of angel in the Garden of Eden, and and how these Nephilim, uh, possessed similar features, almost viper-like. Yeah. And so I just kind of wanted to touch on that again. Can you break down this connection a bit of the the seraphim-type angels yeah. and how these Nephilim, you believe, had serpentine features? And kind of tell us what you think that might have looked like. Sure. Well, and Veracocca is a plume serpent. Right, right. Uh, Quetzalcoatl is all the gods of Central South America, North America were plume serpents, and uh, you have Nagas in India. You have the dragon creator gods in China. You know, Osiris is depicted as a serpent. So is Isis, and they're the Uraeus serpent type gods, as they're sort of classified. All the cultures, whether it's Sumeria with Anki and Enlil, Tiamat, uh, Kronos, Zeus, all the parent gods, most of the parent gods, most of the offspring gods are serpentine gods. It's a constant around the world. And they all bring knowledge. <laughs> and that even the Incas that you were talking about, they say they didn't build Machu Picchu or all of this stuff. And they didn't have the knowledge themselves to do uh, that type of architecture, didn't have the technology to take it up, didn't have the ability necessarily to do astrological alignments, uh, relationships to earth dimensions, uh, sacred junk, all sorts of stuff, the stuff we can't do today. So there's a technology we're still catching up to, as in the days of Noah, and it's that repeating cycle thing. So you're talking about biblically we get a similar story where the sons of god who go to daughters of men and create giants just as they do in atlantean with uh, poseidon and climbing uh, just as zeus does with alchemy to create hercules just as nin uh, the mother goddess does with lugal banda to create gilgamesh uh, sixth generation after the flood, you've got giants being created on both sides of the flood in exactly the same way. And there's an order of watchers. There's four different groups of watchers. One of them is the seraphim. And seraphim are six-winged, serpent-faced angels. They are angelic dragons. They are plumed serpents. They are feathered serpents. And Satan is has many different titles and names. And one of his descriptions, as in Revelation 12, is a serpent and a dragon. And so in his one of his many titles, he would be classified as a seraphim. And in the Kabbalah, they say Satan in his seraphic form is named Samael. 
notice the E-L on, on the end. And in Isaiah 14, his name is Halel. In the book of Enoch, you've got an angel in Eden that's named Gadrael, which means wall of God. It's the, diff- it's the, the same angel, different names. It's just that he's not in his seraphic form in Eden, at least from a biblical perspective, that would be his cherubic form as he's described in Ezekiel 28 as the anointed cherub who also walked amongst the fiery stones and was in Eden, as Ezekiel 28 talks about. Well, cherubim don't walk amongst the fiery stones. That's the stones in front of the altar. Those are fiery stones that one of the seraphim takes to Isaiah, puts to his lips to take away his sin. These are priestly angels. But Satan was also a cherubim, and he was an archangel. And he's classified as uh, Halel Ben Shakar in Isaiah 14 in Hebrew, Halel son of the morning. And there's a morning star order that he would be part of as well. And so he has many, many, and, and that comes in Job 38, 4 through 7, where the sons of God and the morning stars at creation are dancing for joy and in celebration of the creation. And so he is unique among angels, and he has many different titles. But there is this order of seraphim, which are the watchers that appear in Genesis 6. And they're the ones who are going to create most of the giants, both before and after the flood. There are other watchers like Cherubim that will as well. But it's the seraphim with that serpentine imagery that dominates the imagery of all of the pantheons around the world, whether it's a dragon or a serpent, and they were understood to be the, the same uh, imagery in antiquity. And so you also have uh, the kings that are being produced as offspring in all cultures all around the world of these serpentine dragon gods. They take on the same image. And that they're described as serpents originally and they have serpentine features as well before uh, they start to intermarry uh, after the flood and start to lose some of those uh, uh, original uh, looks passed on from their celestial godfathers so it's the same story all around the world so uh, poseidon in atlantis was also a serpentine god (laughs) Interesting to picture, yeah, what these Nephilim might have looked like with serpentine features. But again, peruse on my mind because I just got back from there. But everything you see there is is either the condor, the puma, or the serpent. Yes. And unlike before, I mean, I was finding serpent uh, shapes and uh, features in everything in the walls downtown Cusco are serpents just all over embedded into these stones it's, it almost uh, becomes like a puzzle trying to find the next one it's incredible so something else you pointed out in your book that blew my mind I remember when I, I read this in uh, the Genesis 6 conspiracy the first time I was reading it you talk about how the uh, all of the originating Nephilim mothers so we're talking about human women uh, basically bred with these fallen angels all of the originating Nephilim, Nephilim mothers died for their physiology could not cope with such monsters. Yeah. And tell us a little bit more about this. Break this down because this still just gets me when I read that. 
Yeah, it's absolutely sort of eye popping. Um, so the offspring are going to care, you know, take on characteristics of their parents with the DNA that's going to be passed on. And they're going to grow quicker and into adulthood and larger, faster than um, the woman can, you know, accommodate and, and eventually can't. So they, they face the choice. Lose the baby demigods or lose the mothers. And they opted for, uh, and this is recorded in the Kebra Nagast, which is the Ethiopian Giez version of the Old Testament, just as the oldest, well, for the longest time and the longest copy of the Book of Enoch was written in Giez out of Ethiopia until the Aramaic was uh, version was found. Uh, and it's not quite as long. So if you're getting the Book of Enoch, I... I you know, get the original uh, one that was in publication has a few more verses in it. And so they said in the, in the Ethiopian version of the old Testament that would come downstream to them from Solomon and the queen of Sheba took that old Testament back to them. And so there would have been some scrolls from the hagiography that would have been part of adding some of these details uh, to their addition to this. And they said that the mothers were butchered in a cesarean type of ritual that was going to kill the mother. And they all died in favor of the baby demigods as to be this new super race that was going to rule over humankind and try and erase them from memory of history uh, to wipe them from the face of the earth to be remembered no more. I mean, yeah, that is just, it's, it's literally like a, a, some kind of horror movie, right? Where these, these Nephilim giant uh, infants are being uh, C-sectioned out of these mothers uh to be saved that's just crazy to consider um well and what's also crazy is that they were thought in legend not to have to go through this long growing up period they grew into adulthood um very quickly and were born walking so more like you see in nature right uh and so they were able to multiply before the flood in great numbers it doesn't work out that way after the flood and that's partly what part of the you know the new book gets into um but before the flood they were just multiplying like crazy and they're consuming humans using them in rituals slaughtering them for pleasure drinking their blood it was uh you know a horrific place to be if you were part of what they considered uh, considered the mundane they considered humans like insects and you know there's even a reference to that in after the flood where uh, the israelites say that they felt like grasshoppers uh, compared to the the rephaim giants that they saw and in the book of og if, if people have read that one the lost book of og which is thought to be an extension of the manichaean book of giants um, or the book of lamech which is another part of that uh, apocrypha but uh they literally called humans insects and worms and stuff like that. So I, I find it consistent that if you're going to terrify the Israelites, you're going to use the same references that the 
original giants before the flood we're talking about would describe humans as. And one would presume that even after the flood, the smaller giants would have looked at humans in the same way because they still were huge. I'm glad you, you brought up the before and after the flood. It's important, again, I don't want to assume everybody's tracking on all of this. According to Genesis 6, 4, it says there were giants on the earth in those days, talking about before the flood and also after. So so it's this cosmic chess match. I don't know if you use that term or somebody in this world uses that term where, you know, God, according to the Bible, is creating humans to love and have relationship with. Um, yet here's Satan coming into the garden, taking on the form of this seraph, right? And then um, getting his uh, cohorts, these fallen angels, to come with him. And they can't take over humanity by force, so they're doing it through uh, manipula manipulating the DNA, right? Yes. By breeding with women, creating this illegal hybrid race, that's basically breeding out the pure bloods, right? Yes. And to the point where God answers checkmate with the flood, yep. wipes them out. But then again, the key verse, Genesis 6, 4, they were, they were on the earth in those days and also after. So somehow yep. they came back. There was this second incursion. And I want to ask you about that in a second. But first I want to ask you, just tell us a little bit more about these pre-flood giants uh, kind of some of what you think they looked like characteristically, uh, the sounds they made, um, how big were they, um, and just some of their supernatural abilities. Any Anything you want to say on that? Yeah, so, and there are similarities to the ones after the flood as well. So we need to understand that there was a serpentine look to most of them. And even a thousand years after the flood, uh, in the time of the pharaohs of Egypt with King Tut and Akhenaten. If you Google Akhenaten or go to see a King Tut display that tours around, go look at the Akhenaten um, imagery. And what you have is this long protruding chin, very high cheekbones, thin lips. You have these large wraparound eyes that would have glowed because they were called, they're understood as shining beings and this huge elongated skull without any sutures. And you guess you can bind a skull and when a child is born and make it elongated, but you can't increase the volume and you can't make the sutures disappear. So, and so King Akhenaten, if he's seen without his hat, uh, you see this big elongated skull or Nefertiti and, and some of the other kings and queens but typically has this huge hat that covers it which is not unusual to see the kings trying to hide those big cone heads so to speak and so you look at that image you see a serpent space and that's after a thousand years of you know diluting the bloodline because they had a fertility issue after the flood and so multiply that look to a full serpent type of imagery that Sean and then the size, they were thought to be 20 to 40 feet tall at the minimum versus the largest post-Diluvian giant we have record of is Gilgamesh at 19 feet tall and seven feet wide. And, and Og would have been, based on his bed dimension, somewhere between uh, 13 to 15 feet tall and five to six feet wide. They're considered a two to one height to width ratio. 
versus the average three to one, which is Og's bed was nine cubits long and four cubits wide. That's the standard sort of ratio. And they're called stout and wide uh, in the Old Testament to, rec to recognize that width to them and that they weren't fat. They were all muscle. So these were muscled and big, and they were fleet of foot, ambidextrous. They were the perfect war biological machine. And that they had the ability, at least the Raphaim, according to the uh, Ugaritic text, had the ability to repair themselves. So if you didn't take them by taking their head off, they would have the ability either through technology or through the genes that they inherited to repair themselves. So they're hard to kill. And you have uh, these voices that would just bellow, like in the in the Greek versions, like Atlas from the bottom of a mountain. It would make things shake. And then they had a smell that was terrible and frightening. And they were horrible to look on with these serpentine faces and their size and their ability to make war. They would just make people quake and run in fear just looking upon them. So, yeah, these were, these were monstrous-sized beings. Some people say they were 450 feet to, you know, 500 feet tall, and they get that out of the Aramaic translation of the Book of Enoch, where it says they were 150 cubits tall. Maybe they were. I don't think so. The original Giaz says L's, and we know L is an ancient term of measurement. We just don't know what that term of measurement is. So in the Aramaic version, that could be an accurate, or it could be, let's try and figure out you know, what that measurement is, and they put in a cubit for whatever reasons. Typically, they're thought to be 20 to 40 feet tall, but they could be taller than that still, but I don't think they were 500 feet tall. Maybe some of the gods appeared that size, but not the demigods. And uh, yeah, so they look just like their heavenly uh, godfathers who were opalescent shining beings. So uh, the eyes, when they shone, they would light up a room. All of these, you know, hybrids are wiped out. Yeah, but here they come again. And what I love about your book, again, the Genesis 6 Conspiracy, is you break down in detail. And I'm really excited about the second book because it sounds like in way more detail are we going to learn about these giant tribes. But I love in that first book how you, you talk about the Nephilim Wars and you're kind of giving snapshots of all these different tribes. Because I think a lot of people like me, you know, growing up, reading the Bible, reading about all these these crazy tribes in the Bible. And it's like, how can there be so many and so many different names? And why is a loving God telling a nation, the nation of Israel, to exterminate, uh, genocide all these tribes? Well, that's the good thing about reading your book. You're finding out, well, these likely weren't completely human, right? So talk to us now about giants after the flood, these different tribes, what can you tell us without giving the book away, uh, the second book, and um, these Nephilim wars, what was going on? Yeah, so I think how giants show up after the flood, biblically, is through a second incursion, although I'm open to other ways of survival with help of the fallen angels. But there's something different about the post-Diluvian giants. They're not as large, not as powerful, 
don't have as many sort of mystical sort of qualities to them. So there seems to be some sort of pulling back on what the gods or the fallen angels were able to pass on in that, in that DNA. And that if you look at prehistory, if you want to understand prehistory and its chronology and not get confused when you read it, it's fairly consistent and it matches again up with the Bible. So before the flood, you have the parent gods. After the flood, you have the offspring gods that are ruling. And what I mean by that is so like Kronos and Gaia, for example, would be the chief male and female goddess before the flood. But it's Zeus as the chief um, god of the Olympian gods after the flood. And he produces through with alchemy Hercules after the flood. So that's a post-Diluvian incursion. And that they overthrow those parent gods and kill them somehow. I don't know how you kill immortals, but um, that's the polytheist version all around the world. I think the parent gods went to the pit prison or the abyss prison for their crimes against humanity and against creation. And I think the offspring gods like Zeus and Baal and Osiris and Anki and Enlil as being offspring gods, and, and you could put Veracoca and Quetzalcoatl in that same offspring group, um, go to the pit prison after the flood and no longer walk amongst men because they broke the same laws and violations. And then other gods would move up. So you have... In the Epic of Gilgamesh, you have, as I mentioned earlier, him being created in the sixth generation as son of uh, Lugalbanda and the fertility goddess Nin. There's also a giant before the flood named Gilgamesh in the Book of Giants, Enoch Book of Giants. So it's not unusual to have giants with their names after a giant from before the flood or a god before the flood. That's not sort of unusual, but in the Epic of Gilgamesh, you have the flood story with Upmatishtan or Zyazudra in other transliterations who his whole family are two-thirds god, one-third human, as were Gilgamesh and Enkidu. Demigod giants, it's a flood survival story on an ark. So on the one level, it is... Uh, Similar to the Noah story of a human survival story, but it's talking about a giant survival story. And so you have, if you want to understand the chronology, understand that you have a different regime ruling after the flood. And in the Bible, it's the Balim. And you've got gods like uh, uh, Amaru in there. You've got uh, Kelmart. You've got... Um, several other different gods that are part of the Balim council of gods that are ruling. So they just stepped up as in that rank and order of an army, Saba host army of angels, fallen or loyal, you're just going to move up in rank and order if the top ones are removed or killed. I would say removed from a from a Christian perspective, but um and so in that story, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, you also have a survival story. So again, I'm open to that, but it fits the Bible better that uh, I think better uh, for a second incursion. And that's exactly what happens in the Ugaritic text is you have these giants being created by the Balim, Baal and Ashtaroth. And in fact, they're doing fertility issues after they're gone and or after Baal is killed, as it's described in the Ugaritic text. Um, to bring them back to reproduce more giants because they have a problem and it's a fertility issue. And so 
they have to intermarry with humans after the flood. So they're going to create human giant offsprings that are smaller giants. And they're called, I'm going to call them and list them as the Amal, the Shamal, and or the Shazu out of the uh, Egyptian execration texts on the latter. And the other ones would be more uh, Eastern sources. And they make up like the Hittites and the Amorites. They're giants. They're just not as tall. They're described as being like seven to nine feet tall versus the average size is 11 to 15 feet, mostly in around the 12 foot range in the Greek mythology. And just as the Greek mythology talks about two races of giants, one before the flood and one after. And there's two distinct groups uh, and two distinct periods for these giants. And I, and I talk about that. So this fertility issue, we get that from a term that's in the Old Testament called the terrible ones. Just as King Hababa in the Epic of Gilgamesh is, cause, is created and given a commission as the terrible ones to do horrible things to humans after the flood, you have terrible ones that are talked about in the Bible. And uh, Ezekiel 32, you actually have these terrible ones talking to Pharaoh, who is another terrible one. These are Raphaim bloodline kings and pharaohs, but the ones that are speaking to Pharaoh are locked in the sides of the abyss prison, the pit prison. And they're the ones that were slain and did terrible things on the earth. And they're already in the abyss prison. And that uh, terrible one, uh, the singular form in Hebrew is erit, and eritim for the plural, just as nephilim is the plural of nephil, or raphaim is the plural of, Raph, of rapha, seraphim is the plural of seraph, um, cherubim, Cherub, same sort of ideology. It's it's the Hebrew plural, and also means ones. So the seraphim ones would be this this you know the six winged serpent faced ones by its meaning. Um, Nephilim would be the giant ones, same as uh, the Raphaim. And so these terrible ones are bloodline Raphaim after the flood. And in the definition to that word in Hebrew, it has all different descriptions for giants, but also childless and fertility problems. And not that they couldn't reproduce, they couldn't reproduce enough women. And so they would have to start a hybrid human dynasty so that they don't go extinct. And we get that in Genesis 36 with the marriage between Eliphaz, son of Esau, brother of Jacob, of the 12 tribes of Israel, who, as his sons, uh, marries Timna, a Horim, one of the giant tribes, um, daughter of Seir, which is goes back to Hebrew Satir, as in a devil goat god, a degraded seraphim, um, and produces the Amalekites, even though you've got Amalekim giants that are predating that in Genesis 14. And they're going to take that name sort of eponymously and then go to Petra and live amongst the Amalekim as well. Uh, but you produce this now smaller hybrid human uh, tribe, just as with the nine patriarchless Canaanites in the New Testament, the Amorites, the Jebusites, the Archites, and all nine of them, they don't have a patriarch because they have a Raphaim patriarch. The other three tribes, Canaan uh, is, is is the son of Ham, we know his genealogy, and Heth and Sidon are the sons of Canaan. 
but the other are families. And as you take that back to Hebrew, it means, yes, a family, but also a different species, a different kind, a different race. And so it's implying that uh, there's something different about these. And Amorites are compared in, in, in the book of Amos to giants and the size of the cedars and the strength of oaks on Mount Hermon. Those, so that's a, that's a simile, but it is still saying that they're giants and Amorites were blonde hair, blue eyed, just as the Anakim were blonde hair, blue eyed and, and likely from the Anakim. And I go into, into that in, in, in the new book. So if you look at, we get the patriarchs, outside the table of nations in Genesis 10 and first Chronicles with uh, Timna and Eliphaz because they're not part of the 70 nations of humans, but there's nine patriarchless nations that are listed in the table of nations. But with the Anakim, we get their patriarch listed in the book of Joshua, not in the table of nations. And his name is Arba meaning four. And that Arba is the patriarch and the greatest of the Anakim. He's the he's the patriarchal father of it. And his name's not in the table of nations. Rapha for the tribe of Raphaim giants. Raphaim shows up in Genesis 14 as a tribe in the War of Giants, and then Genesis 15 as part of the Mighty Ten and the Mighty Seven all land that is being awarded to Abraham from the Nile to the Euphrates after the giant war. And they're one of those tribes that are listed in there. So they're a tribe as well. And Raphaim shows up as giant another 23 times in the Old Testament. So way more than Nephilim does because these are the post-Diluvian giants. And so these Raphaim, uh, Rapha is the patriarch for the Raphaim. His name isn't in the table of nations. None of the... The other tribes like the Avim or the Kadmonim or the Perazim or the uh, Kenazim or the Karathim or the Kajalhim and so many other names, none of their names show up in the table of nations because they have a Raphaim patriarch. And yet we get all of these nations that show up that don't go back to the table of nations. That's because they had Raphaim patriarchs, and that's where the hybrids come from. Crazy to consider. Let's talk about some of the specific, most more famous giants mentioned in the Bible. I think the first of which would be Goliath, um, who fought for uh, the Philistines. I think you describe, if I remember right, in your book that Goliath, when you picture him, you know, fighting for Philist the Philistines, you know, versus David and the Israelites, Goliath is actually, you know, he's a, isn't he set up like almost a king of this tribe? And elaborate on that a little bit. Yes. Yeah, so the Philistines are a hybrid branch that invade the Gaza Strip and expropriate that land before the Exodus, say about 1550 BC. But while they're on Crete, where they come from and the islands from there, they're intermarrying with giant tribes, Indo-Aryan tribes. Uh, and, you know, we would know them as the Pelothim or the Cherethim um, and other tribes that I'll talk about, the Kaftarim, Kajalhim. And these are the giant tribes. These are dark-haired giants 
um, versus the blonde hair and the red haired ones with the blonde haired ones being exemplified by the Anakim and the red haired ones being exemplified in, 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 in what, in what I cover in the new book by the Hori. Uh, so these are dark haired ones like Gilgamesh and they're from a different watcher. Um, uh, they're the cherubim, which has one face of a human. Also has, you know, we're talking about uh, uh, bird faces. You were talking about that earlier. So, like, you have, uh, you know, a falcon god in Horus, or you have uh, the Tengu offspring of the gods in Southeast Asia, which are bird-like individuals. You have the Zababa and the Popol Vuh are demigod giants with an owl face. The Kamazots is the house of the bat uh, and a branch of the Zababa and the Popol Vuh, all demigods. And so I think those are coming from the eagle face of the Trubum. So when the Trubum takes a form, it's going to take one of its four faces. Um, but it's going to be, I know I'm down this this rabbit hole, I'll come back out of it pretty quick. Um, so you have... Uh, 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 an ox or a bull as one face. You have a lion, as in the lion men of Moab, or lion-like men of Gad, or Arioch, the king of the Mesopotamian giants out of the east and the war of giants. Genesis 14, which means lion-like, comes from Arian. Um, and Ariel in connection to angels like that that aren't listed in the Bible. And, of course, you have the human head, and you have, uh, yeah, that's the forehead. So if they took an image, they would take one face. So, and if they were to reproduce, then that giant would look like the face that they took. And so it starts to make sense why we see some different kinds of giants. Now, the red-haired ones um, and the blonde-haired ones are part of like the Tuatha Du Danan and populate the Middle East and up into the North Country, like into Germany and Norway and Russia and the red-haired ones more over to Scotland and Ireland. So anyways, just sort of laying that that kind of down is you have these uh, uh, giant tribes that have these, these, these different looks after the flood, but they're all part of the five different Indo-Aryan kind of groups. So as we look at how this, this sort of fits in terms of, of uh, the offspring uh, after the flood, they're going to produce offspring that look like them. And so the whoring would produce a lot of the red-haired ones. And that's how you get like the Tuatha de Danan and uh, so on and so forth throughout the, 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 the other lands. So it's very important to uh, follow that sort of line of thought in terms of when you're looking at who the giants are, then who, who would be the hybrids that would be living amongst these giants in that new military order. And so the Philistines, as we look at that, are these dark-haired ones coming back in, coming full circle, and they're going to expropriate the land. But they're And there's told, told to us biblically that they're going to drive out the Anakim and the Avim and any other giants in that land, except that a couple of the cities are going to remain in the Philistine military complex that I cover off. So the Philistines are going to keep Ashad and Ekron, but the Avim are going to maintain control of Gaza, where Goliath comes from, and judges, I'm sorry, uh, they're going to keep, yeah, they're going to keep control of Gaza, 
which is also known as Azza in the Old Testament. And then the Anakim will control Gath, where Goliath comes from, and uh, a shot. So that five-city Pentapolis is split up amongst these different giants, plus all these other giants that came along with the Philistines that I had mentioned. This is the military complex. Now, it was kings that were ruling, giant kings that were ruling these five-city Pentapolis. So Gath would have been the king of Gath, and there would have been four other kings there, all giant kings, as they're uh, assigned from the princes of the Philistines, which is the sort of the, the older bloodlines and a higher ruling council that appointed the kings. So when David was going out to fight Goliath, this uh, he's six cubits in a span, and as the king of Gath, that's 21 inches versus 18 inches, um, and he's going to be 11 feet, three inches tall, and he's going to be stout and wide. And he's the ultimate warrior of legend, one of the greatest warriors, if not the greatest warrior since the flood. He's still a little bit smaller than Achilles, that's 12 feet tall, or Orontes, as some of the Greeks would uh, discovered some giant skeletons uh, in, in, the middle, in the Middle East. Um, but a giant nonetheless and smaller than Og and smaller than Gilgamesh. And so he's taken five smooth stones with him. Not because he thinks he's going to miss. He thinks he's going to have to fight the other five kings at the same time, that they're going to come rushing to him. And when he fells Goliath with that stone, he doesn't leave it at that. He takes the head and shows it to them. That is the worst death a giant or a royale in have, as the ex execration text talks about. And it's because they believe that that giant will never make it to the other world where their gods live and win. Uh, Sheol, Hades, the other world, Argatha, all these different names for it around the world. Or they're going to have to wander the earth as a demon spirit. And won't have any rest. We'll have to, the only time they can get rest is by possessing people. So there is a lot of details that go into this that you don't really pick up unless you know more about the context as to who the peoples were. Am I right in saying that one of the reasons God forbid Israel to, you know, sac child sacrifice to idols isn't just because you're killing an innocent child and, and, you know, to this idol, but wasn't it also because these giant hybrids like Goliath were actually cannibals who would eat the sacrifices literally brought to them? Yes. Yes. And the giants who lived in the covenant land did all of these same practices. And that was the land reserved by God um, as part of the, land divvying up that's talked about in all cultures around the world and in the bible as well that's the 70 nations that's how it split and the land of the covenant was god's land and the giants went there after the flood purposely to lie and wait to wipe israel out when they came about from the face of the earth so that the messiah wouldn't come along and doing it for their godfathers who they received authority from because they did not want the Adamites to be raised up and through Noah, obviously after the flood as an Adamite to be raised up like angels in the future time and to be the inheritors of eternity. 
And the fallen angels were trying to stop that from happening and trying to justify their rebelling. So they used their spirit's offspring to get their hands dirty because angels, fallen angels know the full power of God. They're not going to sort of cross that line. And violations to the laws of creation, they saw what that art already did at least two times to orders of angels that did that. So they use their spirit's offspring to do their do their dirty work, and they're trying to wipe Israel from the face of the earth. So we talked about the Amalekites, the Amalekim. That's the first battle Israel is going to take on before they're even trained in war, before they have enough weapons at the Battle of Rephidim, as soon as they come out of of Egypt. And the Amalekites want to wipe Israel from the face of the earth. They take that oath, and that's what's going to happen to the Amalekites for due justice in the time of King David. Uh, King Saul does part of it. David finishes it off. And the Amalekites, they understand from the legal Old Testament law that if they wipe Israel from the face of the earth, Esau, the father of Eliphaz, who married Timnah to create the Amalekites, they named Am Amalek after the giants of Petra, um, are going to inherit the blessings Jacob inherited. The birthright, the blessings, and the Messianic blessing. And it's also the Amalekites that are going to draw all of these nations, these giant nations, into a blood oath to wipe Israel from the face of the earth. That also includes the Philistines. So this is a transgenerational oath that moves beyond the time of the Exodus through the age of the judges into the time of King David and Solomon and all throughout Israelite history. And I think we're seeing some of that with Hamas today. I mean, whether or not they're bloodlines of the old Philistines or not, they're swearing that same oath. And you have also, uh, I'm trying to uh, remember the other terrorist group that's in, in Lebanon, um, no, it starts with Hezbollah. Uh, part of the nations that swore on to this oath that's seen downstream as David sees it is recorded in Psalms 83 to wipe Israel from the face of the mm -hmm. earth. Same oath that was done in the time of the Exodus. The, that's the area of Tyr. Tyr is listed in that same uh blood oath and they were one of the more powerful nations at the time at the at the end of the conquest wars and were all throughout the ages and even the time of king david david's getting uh is makes friends and peace treaty with king tyr and solomon gets all of his building knowledge and craftsmen to come in and train the israelites to build the first temple so you can see how powerful that that they were so this is an oath that has been going on and a battle that has been going on and still seemingly is going on as transgenerational. Um, and that that context for understanding who the Philistines were in the time of King David is very, very important for the whole story. Is there any closing thoughts or pieces of information that you think is essential for people to know regarding this topic of the ancient giants of renown? Yeah, so I would, you know, I talk about a term in book one called Rex Deus, which means kings of God. And uh, so the royals, they take their genealogies back to a specific Nephilim and Raphaim patriarch and a specific angelic uh, godfather um, from the celestial mafia, as I like to call the, 
So I understand other people, other belief systems would look at them as good gods, but that's the sort of allegory that I look as the fallen ones, the, the Nephilim of the Shemaim, as I talk about them in, in the new book. So in book two, I take that a step further and I define what a royale is. And a royale, and first of all, just take a step back and for people who this might be new to, even though they take their genealogies, they may not be true. Okay, fine, we get that, but it's important to them and what they're doing with that belief system is what we need to, to uh, focus on. And that royale, uh, think about what makes a king or a queen. Why is King Charles III the king other than his mother was? What makes them a king or a queen? That's their divine right to rule, as King James would talk about, or as most of the royals would talk about, that comes from the Council of the Gods. So when they swear their oaths, these ancient oath ceremonies that we saw with King Charles, when they swear it to a specific God, it's not the God of the Bible, it's to a specific patriarchal godfather that they're swearing that oath for. And biblically in post-Diluvianoids, we would understand that coming from the Baalim, as the, as the council of gods being located there, and receiving that divine right to rule, just as the, the Rapiu Rapium did in the Ugaritic text. And so royale means, as you take that back to old French, it means king. And it goes back to like regal and words like that in Latin, and then back to rule as in ruler in Indo-Aryan. And Al is a transliteration. It's a transliteration as Baal is, meaning Lord God. You know, and one of the main gods of uh, you know secret societies and the Gnostics. And so Al means a god, and Lord or Master God is another way you could tra uh, translate that as well. El in Hebrew is the word for an angel or a god. And Al is a transliteration of that. So when you see like Michael, El, or Raphael, that would mean healer of God or God heals. That's that angelic word, just as Halel would be one of the names, Samael that we talked about, Azazel as being the strong goat god one as he's been degraded to, uh, which is the leader of the Watchers in uh, the book of Enoch, um, <clears throat> you have you you start to sort of roll this into this this understanding that when you get into let's say uh, Arabic al would be a transliteration for el, uh, or into uh, the Mesopotamian language il or ilu. It's the same word being transliterated in other languages, just as al would be a god or an angel. And so you have the kings of God. It's the same term as Rex Deus. And it comes from that bloodline right of inheritance of the royals as a specific race, as they look at themselves, that's superior to humans that usurp the kingships both before the flood and after the flood and have kept humankind down. They controlled the army, they controlled all of the education, they controlled the religions, they controlled all of the business and the governance within the top two classes. And they would leave a small entrepreneurial class of bakers and tailors and things of essential needs and services for humans. And then you'd have the fourth class, which would be slaves and poor people. 
And that's what they want to reinstitute in the globalist new world order where there will be 10 kings that rise in their, what they would call in their belief system, the Leviathan order or the multi-headed seventh empire that Revelation talks about where they're going to reinstate that class system in a new world order. So beware of the globalist agenda because it's generally polytheist and it's generally socialistic and it's the belief system that's behind it and it's the royals who control that. And I will talk about that thelemic tree and the hierarchy of the royals within the secret societies uh, in a couple of chapters in the new book as well. Wow. Uh, I'm looking forward to this new book. Um, Gary, thank you so much for your time today and for joining me um, again, for everybody listening, watching, you got to get Gary's first book, the Genesis six conspiracy. You can get it uh, on his website, the Genesis six conspiracy.com. Correct. Yes. That's the number six too. Yes. The number six. And uh, do you have a mailing list where you can uh, let people know the, any news breaking about the new book? Um, no, I don't, I do not have a, a, a mass emailing or anything like that, but I will be out all over social media yeah. and you know, when, when it gets released because it's, it's kind of in my interest to do so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So for everybody watching, listening, um, yeah, just keep tabs on my accounts. Cause I'll be uh, spreading the word when the new book comes out, we'll link to it straight from uh, Gary's website or Amazon. And I cannot wait to pre-order my copy. Um, but Gary, thank you so much. Is there any way else people can follow you on social media or anything like that? Yeah, I'm on Facebook and you can uh, follow. I post a lot of shows on my timeline and also in a group. I don't run the group. It's named after me, Gary Wayne and the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. And I answer questions in there or answer questions on my timeline. And people send me a message on Messenger. I'll get back to you and answer questions. If you have a question or you want a document like on just name the topic, you know, like second incursion or something like that. If I have a document, I supply that at no charge to people. You just have to get a hold of me through my website or through social media. Uh, I'm also on Twitter uh, under, you know, at Gary Wayne as well. Um, starting to take that back up a little bit and then looking at what other social media I'm going to be on. Um, things have really changed on social media over the last two or yeah. three years. So trying to sort out where the audience is and where there's less um, censorship. Yeah, man, that's great to hear that you are on Twitter now, also known as X. All got to make sure I'm following you there. So follow Gary on Twitter, follow him on Facebook. Yeah, I'm a part of that Facebook group as well. That's some great dialogue. I'm always amazed, Gary, at how, uh, how personal you are to respond to all these questions. And I mean, you, you probably got some crazy people out there saying crazy stuff and you're still, you know, trying to treat people fairly and answer their questions. So uh, thanks for being such a, a personable and reachable guy. I really appreciate that. And again, thank you for writing uh, these books. Um, they're just a wealth of knowledge and uh, great to use for reference. So Gary, I cannot wait for this next book to come out and we will spread the word when it does and we'll do another interview in the future. Well, thank you. Fight me back anytime. 